Our central text for today is found in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold which perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. So there's this man whose hair looks like he's been in quarantine for about six years or could play the part of Rip Van Winkle if he tried. And he's had this Rolex, Rolex watch in his possession for a very long time. And here on this episode of Antique Roadshow, he brings that Rolex to figure out what its value is. And this is what happens. You have the original Rolex brochure here for the Cosmograph. You have two receipts, the order receipt and your payment receipt here. You have the original box, even the outer box here. So these watches, as we've talked on uh, Antiques Roadshow, have become very collectible and valuable. It's got a couple very special features about it. Underneath the word Rolex and above the word Cosmograph, it says Oyster. And that refers to these screw-down buttons here. They made this version with and without screw-down buttons. The ones without the screw-down buttons are still water-resistant, but this was a much better water-resistant case because you could lock down the chronograph buttons on it. It still has the foil sticker on the back with the reference number of the watch, 6263. Had it be worn, that would be the first thing that would wear off the watch. The date mark on the bracelet shows that it was made in the first quarter of 1971. Your watch was made approximately 1971 and he ordered it a couple years later. Collectors love this watch because Paul Newman wore it in a movie called Winning. It wasn't this particular model, it did not have the screw down buttons. The one that Paul Newman wore, currently at auction, those watches are going for approximately $150,000 to $200,000. Your watch is more special. You it says it says oyster <laughs> on it. Yes. They did that for an extremely short period of time. We refer to that as a Mark II dial. And this particular model, being marked oyster, 
is extremely, extremely rare. A watch like this at auction is worth about $400,000. <laughs> you okay? <laughs> Don't fall. I'm not done yet. The man is literally swept off his feet. He is astonished to learn that this thing that he knew was precious at some level, he had no idea. He, had, he was dimly aware of its past and had, could never have dreamt of its future value. And, and so he is. He is absolutely gobsmacked by the preciousness of this timepiece. And we all marvel at it too. We said at the beginning of our worship service that we all have to ask the question at some point, how in a world that is originating in God and is overseen by God, do we respond to troubles that threaten our faith in God? There's no way around that question. And we're starting to look, as of last week, at the book of 1 Peter, which is, you might say, one letter entirely devoted to that question. And it's almost like a musical composition. He, he goes in movements and he, he returns to that question on repeated occasions. Well, this morning's text is the first movement in that theme. And I would argue that this text, in some ways, connects a lot with that silly little clip from Antique Roadshow. That when it comes to facing troubles, it really does come down to a sense of time. And also coming to terms with the true value of what is in your possession. So we're going to hear Peter say three things, or actually we've already heard Peter say three things to us about what it means to face trials. And it all comes down to being given a sense of three things, of chronology, of crisis, and of communion. Of chronology, of the crisis, and of communion. So let's start with chronology. All right. Peter is writing to a bunch of fledgling communities that are under duress. Um, as it was in Jerusalem, so it is true of these churches that were in Asia Minor, which is now um, Turkey. There was, in that day, an enormous social cost to following Jesus. And that's why Peter, according to last week's texts, addresses them, describes them as those who are exiles. They live in a certain place, but everybody who looks at them, looks at them as if to say, you're not from around here, are you? That however they understand themselves, they have to understand themselves as to the rest of their world as strange. They are strange in their belief of a man who claimed to be God and who it is claimed rose from the dead. They are strange for believing that when everybody else says Caesar is Lord, they say actually Jesus is Lord. And for all of those reasons and others, they're deemed as strange. And when they're seen as strange, there comes with that a cost. They're held in suspicion. They're marginalized. They're antagonized. Maybe threats come their way. There's a social cost to their faith. And when there is a social cost to their faith, there's a threat to their faith. When it costs you to believe, will you believe? Now, by point of contrast, uh, for most of American history, there was no social cost to believing in Jesus. Some may argue that that cost is increasing a little bit in our day, but whether you believe there's a cost, a social cost of faith in our day or not, the truth is, when it comes to tests of our faith, when it comes to tests that cause us to question our faith, the same question presents itself. What do we do then? 
How do we respond? Peter is acknowledging in that day, and he would acknowledge in our day, that there are various troubles. And yet the key to facing that is, first of all, coming to terms with a certain chronology. A chronology, that is, of God's dealing with humanity. And so, just like a guy with a watch, Peter kind of winds the watch back a little bit at first. Reminds them of what's happened in their immediate past. Namely, verse 3, that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is what? Who has caused us to be born again to a living faith. Just like Jesus says to Nicodemus, so Peter is telling them, Peter is telling us, nobody has life in God without God first awakening life in them, without revealing something to them, without illuminating in them uh, a sense of who he is and of who Christ is and why he might in fact be Lord. That new birth begins with God acting upon them. And that new birth is something unto a living hope, a hope that has a liveliness to it, a hope that is centered on the possibility, a strange hope even, a strange hope like no other, in that it is a hope that believes that no matter how frail you know life to be, it will endure. There is an endurance to life for those whose faith is in the one who conquered death. And that, my friends, is a hope that for several in our body this week, they cling to ever more tightly because of someone that they've lost. And that is a hope that many, many more, even in our country and in this world, cling to ever more tightly in the wake of another unjust death. When moments come to you like that, when the darkness descends upon you, you reach for something. And in that moment, in Peter's people, those he's talking to, and those he's talking to us, you reach for that living hope. He winds the clock a little bit back. Now, to say that they have that hope is not simply to say we hope because we hope it's true. We want it to be true. And that's why Peter has to wind the watch back just a little bit further. This hope is based upon a moment. It's based upon a fact to which many had given testimony, to which then many hundreds of others had given testimony, to which at that point thousands were giving testimony as a consequence of being persuaded by the work of the Holy Spirit. And that truth upon which this hope rests is that Jesus was in fact risen from the dead. You have been caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This hope rests on a fact, not just on a wish that it might be true. And it has to be that. Paul says, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then we are to be pitied more than all people. And that's why Peter has to wind the clock back just a little bit more to let us see that this hope rests upon a resurrection. And even then, one more time, he turns that watch just a little back further. Because the resurrection that leads to our rebirth all rests upon one thing. In this text, the mercy of God. As we heard last week, that mercy that's based on the foreknowledge of God. His choice, the consequence comes to us. He winds it back that we might see that this faith, this hope, is based on something more than just optimism. Optimism is vastly different from hope. Optimism is the belief um, that you should be positive for the sake of being positive because the alternative view uh, dooms you to sort of an outlook of despair. And as much as we might admire that position, hope is different from optimism in that hope does not depend on your capacity to be optimistic. And aren't we glad for that? Especially those of us that adopt the frame of Eeyore more often than those of Pooh. 
This hope rests upon a fact, but this hope rests upon a belief that God is not only interested in us knowing about our past, but also interested in knowing us about our future. Peter winds it back, and then he winds it forward. He winds it forward to remind us that this hope, he says, this hope is to an inheritance. An inheritance that he says is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now to a Jewish mindset, you hear the word inheritance, you immediately jump to the idea of land, for that's how you thought of an inheritance in that day, because land is a precious commodity. It, it gave you a sense of place, it gave you a sense of provision and protection. Land was big. Peter is out to say to us without specifying that this hope, this hope is of a preciousness on an order of magnitude far greater than any land that you might get in a deed. Because in that day, given the social cost, you've already lost much. The disciples tell Jesus, we've left much behind in order to follow you. This inheritance, Peter is saying, is of greater consequence and greater value because it means an end. It means that everything that is broken shall be mended. It means that everything that is unjust shall be resolved. It means everything that is lost shall be found and everything that is dead shall be made alive. If you're going to face your trouble, you've got to wind that clock forward. You've got to see what Peter is out for us to see. That in this hope, it is a hope upon an inheritance. An inheritance that none of us could fathom. But before he's done with the watch, he's not only got to wind it back, he's not going to wind it forward, he's got to wind it He's got to wind it to the present. He's got to wind it to their moment. He's got to wind it to our moment. Because there comes a point in which you have to ask yourself, what do we, what do, we do now? The future hope we have is based on a past thing that's happened, and how does that help us face it now? He would say that God is at work not only in our past, not only in our future, but also in our present. Because he says there in verse 5, you are being guarded by God's power through faith in the salvation that is still to be revealed in the last day. Guarded. Guarded by faith. Now, that's at first glance great news. Because what do we know of faith? Faith is a gift. Faith is something we nurture through the, the means of grace that we use. We read, we pray, we're with community, we receive the sacraments. Those are all things that we nurture. And yet what Peter is telling us is that God is one who attends and nurtures our faith as much as we nurture our gardens. He's a steward of our faith, much as we steward everything else. And that's great news. Because isn't there this ominous thought in the back of our heads when it comes to faith in the midst of the darkness and trouble, in that we, we begin to think of our faith like, like a waiter uh, carrying a platter of porcelain dishes and he's walking among a pack of wildebeests. Is that a vivid enough image for you? And, and we think that it's all on us to preserve this precious and fragile thing, but everything around us is conspiring to destroy it. And that's how we think of it. And yet Peter is out to say, no, no, it's by God's power that you're guarded through faith. You are not alone. You are not left in the lurch to walk in these times of trouble as if you're all alone. And that's great news. But it's also curious news. Because when... He says that you might be suffering as a consequence of your faith and you're, you're also being guarded in that faith. How do those two things work at the same time? So here's where we get into the second thing that I think Peter is out for us to grasp. Yes, we have to grapple 
with uh, the chronology of God's dealings with us. We also have to grapple with our sense of the crisis, whatever our troubles may be. And what Peter is out to say to us is two things about how we grapple with the true nature of the crisis. Namely, one, that it's by comparison temporary, but two, that it's full of potential. What do I mean by temporary? Um, Peter has likely never met these folks that he is writing to, but he's heard enough reports back from them that he knows that they're suffering, that their social cost that's costing them is in fact real. And he knows that it's not trivial, he knows that it's not trifling, and that they are reasonably and properly grieved by what they're experiencing. They may have lost friendships or, or family relationships as a consequence of their belief. They may have things taken from them. They may have had their own character impugned or maligned. They have been, may have been incarcerated unjustly. Who knows? But he knows that their suffering is real. It's reasonably grieved, grievous. And that's why he doesn't say to them, um, get over it. He doesn't say to them, suck it up. Those troubles have cost them. And yet he's asking them with respect to consider those troubles in a certain context. He's asking them to realize that by comparison, what they're suffering is temporary. And that's why he says to them, it's, it's you've endured these sufferings for a little while. It's his partner in crime, Paul, who says something very similar that you heard us talk about back in January from Romans 8, where, where Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. No matter how much our troubles fill our frame, um, focus all of our attention in that direction, Peter is asking us to see them in comparison. In comparison with the duration of time in which those troubles will no longer exist. And also in comparison to what will supplant and replace those troubles, namely glory, his goodness, and his mercies unto us. And when you see that trouble in that context, it changes the way you see it. It, it has an effect on the significance that you ascribe to it. Now you've probably heard the illustration of, of two people who, who work the same loathsome job, it's either back-breaking or it's mind-numbing, but they both do the same stuff, and any of us would look at it and go, I, I don't think I'd ever want that job, and yet one of the persons makes uh, $28,000 a year, and the other person makes $280,000 a year. They have the exact same work. It requires the exact same skill or lack thereof and yet they, the attitude they bring to that work is drastically different on account of what comes after it, what proceeds from it. It's a silly example, but Peter is asking us to think of our trials and our troubles, asking them to think of their trials and their troubles in terms of its temporariness, in terms of its comparable lightness as compared to the weight of glory still to come. Now, that that kind of incentive to facing our trials in a certain way, that is not, not a, a, a vague inducement or incentive to passivity. It is not simply to sit there idly by and not care anymore. Jesus Christ, for as long as he walked the earth, 
was always out to work shalom where he could. He was always out to bring wholeness to those he encountered. He was there to preach good news to the poor. He was there to preach liberation to the captives. Among those, just as an example with the story of Zacchaeus, he's out to bring justice where there was injustice. And all the while, he's out to encourage people to have faith in him and in the kingdom of whom he is the king that he's ushering in. He's the embodiment of the one to encourage patience in the midst of suffering, but also the embodiment of the one who sought to relieve suffering wherever he could. Because that's what love does. Wherever there is a path or a trajectory to relieve suffering, he is the embodiment, he is the, the example of what we are to be too. But where that path is blocked and we see no way unto it, then we are to wait in that moment with patience. And we're to see those trials and those troubles in that wider context. You see it as temporary. But Peter is also asking us to see it, our trials and our troubles, as full of potential. Full of the possibility that something may in fact be beautiful as a consequence of that. When he says there in verses 6 and 7 that it is through these trials that we discover the proven genuineness of our faith, tested like gold is being refined by fire, even though faith is far more valuable than gold. He is saying that inasmuch as trials are by definition that which steals from us, that which, which takes from us in ways sometimes that we can't even define or can't even ascribe words to, that there is also the potential for it to make us more than what we were to turn us more robust on the other side of them. Yes, trials may weaken. Yes, trials have weakened you. Yes, trials have weakened me. But there is potential in them to make us stronger. Look, what muscle do you have that was not strengthened by resistance? None of them. George Herbert, uh, British a uh, poet, a uh, British churchman of the 18th century, uh, he wrote a poem called Affliction, and he said, We are trees whom shaking fastens more. It's what trials can do, and it's only what trials can do. No learning of any sort can do that. This last week, in the funeral for George Floyd, there was a hymn written by the son of a slave in antebellum uh, Maryland, and the, the hymn writer was named Charles Albert Tindley, and he wrote a hymn called We'll Understand It Better By and By. And one of, the, one of the stanzas in that chorus goes like this, Trials dark on every hand, and we cannot understand all the ways of God would lead us to that blessed promised land. But he guides us with his eye, and we'll follow till we die, for we'll understand it better by and by. In that moment, those who are singing in lament, they are telling us, Peter is telling us, there is learning in the lament that accompanies our trials. Much may be taken from us in that season, but do not assume that something cannot be given to you and granted to you such that you might even give thanks for it as a consequence of it. There is something to be gained, he says, even in the midst of the trials, and so long as we see them in that potential, in that frame, it is how we face it in the crisis. But, but that last line there brings us to the, the third and final thing that I think Peter's out to say, and it's, it actually, all of that rests upon this last point. Yes, 
We need to come to terms with the chronology of God's dealings with us. Yes, we need to come to terms with the nature of the crises that we face. But last of all, we need to grapple with some other thing. And it all comes down to what Peter says there in verse 8 of this passage. Words that when we first hear them, we might, we might scratch our heads. We might even chafe at them. But he says this, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We hear that line and we think, is Peter, is Peter describing the people that he's addressing or is he exhorting them? Is, is he commending them for faith and joy that is inexpressible or is he calling them to that? He's not clear and, and he might even be purposefully ambiguous there. And yet that there is one thing that is clear. The experience of faith in who Jesus is, is not merely, mainly, or exclusively about doing his will. It is that. It includes that. But it is not solely complying with his wishes for us or for the world. What Peter is out to say to us about loving whom we cannot see, faith in him we have never met, But the experience of faith is one not only of believing that he is important, not only believing that he is holy, not only believing that he is divine, but also believing that he is beautiful. Beautiful as a sunrise is beautiful. Beautiful as a work of arts or a composition of music is beautiful. Beautiful in the way we find words to speak admiringly of those who are in their final days because in that season we see them in their fullness like we never have. The experience of faith is not merely checking off a bunch of boxes about what we believe and what certain doctrines we can explain. It is about having affections for the Lord. Because we believe His affections are for us that his work was on our behalf, and it wasn't a begrudging work. Now you and I hear those words, and maybe they come off a little bit cold. Maybe we sound a certain, we apply a certain skepticism to them. Love, joy inexpressible in one whom we have never met and whom we cannot see, is, is that even possible? How do people wrestle with that in times of, of duress? Look, how do our black brothers and sisters this week who, who live by faith, how, how, do they, how do they take a text like this in the wake of another unjust killing? How do our, how do our Asian brothers and sisters, for that matter, um, take a text like this when, when they themselves have been targeted uh, in, with contempt um, as if they're responsible for the outbreak of the virus. How does anybody, especially those people in places where the social cost of following Jesus is an everyday thing, how do they respond to a text like this? How do they believe that they might have love and joy inexpressible for him who is their Lord, but who is the Lord even over their pain? Dr. Esau Macaulay, He's a black man, he's an Anglican priest, he's a a professor at Wheaton College in New Testament. He wrote an article this week in which he speaks of where his hope comes from in this fraught season. He says this, where does my hope come from? Not from the usual places. Not from the fact that we've added more faces to our marches. My trust goes much deeper to the resurrection and the way in which it reconfigures our spiritual imagination. God 
has a long history of giving his people a belief in the seemingly impossible. When Dr. Macaulay there speaks of a spiritual imagination, surely he means imagining a new world in which the sorts of things that have happened in the last several weeks, if not for many, 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 many years, would come to an end. But that spiritual imagination is not simply about the new world. It is also an imagination that takes to heart the way in which Jesus sees not just his world, but each one of us. But as I said, Jesus was not one to do his work and to enter into his suffering in a begrudging way, but to do so gladly, to do so gladly. And this is the gospel that he sent to us. This is the good news that he entered into his suffering and entered into his glory for our good, that his good might flow through us to make this world as he would have intended. Look, when it comes to facing our trials, yes, we do need to consider the chronology of events that God has worked with us. Yes, we do need to consider the nature of the crisis in that context. But we also have to recognize that facing trouble is never solely about seeing context. If anything, facing our troubles is mainly about reckoning with what you and I were meant for. And that was one thing. Communion with God. To know Him and to delight in Him. To have affection for Him. To believe that He has affections for us. And we see that communion unfold in us through making use of the means of grace, through reading and through praying, through being still, through crying out, through wrestling with what He's told us, through grappling with what we suffer through and, and taking both our faith and our doubts unto Him. If only thing, maybe believing that He believes in us because of what He has done on our behalf. That's all in, in an effort to, to commune with Him, not simply comply with Him. We were meant for that. And when we commune with Him, when we attend to Him, that He is out to tell us, so Peter says, is how He breaks through into our darkest moments. That is how we face our sorrows and our trials with courage. That is when we believe, just as the prophets foretold, and as the angels long to look, that there was one who entered into His suffering that He might be glorified. And when we believe that, we believe that we're part of His story. And that when our suffering begins, our suffering will also end. And in that, a glory shall be found. Jesus did not suffer so that you and I would not suffer. Rather, He suffered so that you and I might suffer with hope that they, you and I, would learn in our lament that He is Lord and that we might believe in it. And that's why I'll close with an apology to Charles Albert Tindley. Trials dark on every hand and we cannot understand all the ways of God would lead us to that blessed promised land. But He guides us with His eye and we'll follow till we die for we'll understand it better by and by. Amen, church.